All right. Man, I just want to say that I'm... Um, uh, I was joking with Scott. It's like the first week uh, we expand our sanctuary. Everybody's gone for Thanksgiving or whatever. But uh, uh, I am really glad. There are several of you that I've um, had conversations about this topic with or around it. And uh, I am just really glad that a lot of you guys are here this morning. So thanks for getting up, even after a busy week with Thanksgiving and coming. Um, because... Uh, this topic we're talking about is uh, really important, and honestly, I feel like I've been over my head this week. I was telling Katie um, that this sermon has just felt like a lot more prep than normal, even though when y'all walk away from this, you probably won't feel amazed, but there's just so much study and stuff that goes into this, and it's been really great for me. I've been really enjoying it, and I hope um, we're just going to really touch the tip of the iceberg today, but I really hope it blesses you. Um, Something I've been thinking about this week is when you pick up the Bible, you are picking up many things. You're picking up a book that has a lot of encouragement. It has a lot of teachings from God in it, but you're also primarily, or at least in large part, picking up a history book, right? Like this book is not just a bunch of fanciful stories, but it's actually a record of history that has been going on for many years, since really the beginning of time. Um, and like the story of the Bible is that, you know, in short, God created a people, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. And so the world falls into chaos. In that chaos, starting in Genesis 6 and then also in Genesis 12, you see God reaching into the world. I shouldn't say starting in Genesis 6. It really started all the way back with Adam and Eve's children. But Anyways, you see God reaching into the world, and he's trying to set apart for himself a people, right? The Jews, the nation of Israel. He tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a great people, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this is a lot of what the beginning of the Bible is about. It's the history of the Jews, that they were starting out to be God's people, but then they failed. They broke the covenant. Um, they didn't do their end of the deal. And so all of that falls apart, Right? And so in the New Testament, you see God deciding that he's going to become a human and he's going to deal with the root of our problem because he knew all along that there was something a lot deeper going on. He gave us the law and he reached out to Israel because he wanted to show us that just trying to be good isn't going to be good enough. Like there's something deeper inside of us that needs to be dealt with, right? And that's why Jesus came. And God was planning that all the way from the very beginning. He told Adam and Eve, I'm going to send someone who's going to crush the head of the serpent and the serpent is going to strike his heel. And that was Jesus. Jesus became a man, took on our body, and ultimately took on our sins and made the way where our problem could be dealt with so that now God can make a new and truer Israel. An Israel that is not just trying to live up to a bunch of good things, but they're actually new creations. They have new hearts. And so they have the power by God's spirit to live a new life. That's the story of the Bible. And it's a true story. We, uh, it's good to remember that everything in here is true, but this book is under attack. I think we could all agree. I'm pretty sure all of us in here at some point in time have heard somebody trying to discredit the Bible, right? Um, 
The veracity of the biblical text has been challenged for hundreds of years. It's not a new thing, you know? If you read history or whatever, you'll see there have been intellects and people from all times that have attacked the Bible and tried to undermine the trustworthiness of the, of the Bible. Because if the Bible is not true, you know, like we really don't have a foundation to stand on as far as our faith goes, right? Like if this book could be discredited, what you believe has no foundation other than what you feel like is true. And feelings change. Feelings are subjective, right? And so if this book is not reliable, our whole faith is, is, has no foundation anymore, right? Um, and so it's a big deal if this book is true. But, um, and that's really the question I want to talk about today, because I want to ask you, how do you know that the Bible isn't just a bunch of made-up stories, you know, like if you, and I'm glad some of you, well, it's just Zane and Daxon, but anyways, <laughs> I was actually glad when Courtney told me that the youth wouldn't be going to class today because you guys, when you get older and go to college, like you're going to have people challenge you on this. How do you know the Bible is true? Because just knowing that your parents said so, or your friends say so, or your pastor said so isn't good enough because every religion has its major books, right? Islam has a Quran. Um, I wrote some of them down. Let's see, Mormonism has the Book of Mormon, Hinduism, Hare Krishna, I don't know how you say that, Buddhism, they all have their sacred writings, right? And what makes ours any different? Like, how do we know this is trustworthy? It's a big question, and it's important. It's not something we should take lightly. Look at what uh, Bart Ehrman says in misquoting Jesus. He's a critic of the Bible. He doesn't believe it. He says, not only do we not have the originals of the biblical manuscripts, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals, and they're different from them in thousands of ways. Mistakes multiply and get repeated. Sometimes they get corrected, and sometimes they get compounded. And so it goes for centuries. In some places, we simply cannot be sure we have reconstructed the text accurately. It's a bit hard to know what the words of Jesus mean if we don't even know what the words are. Now that is a very well-worded and very bold attack on the Bible, right? But how do you know that's not true, right? Like, how, what, are you, what are you gonna say to Bart? How do we know that what he's saying is false? Is it false, right? So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna look at the Bible, and I'm going to do my best to present to you what I believe is compelling evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible, right? But I want to say from the very beginning that there's no way I can convince you in an hour that the Bible is absolutely trustworthy. If you really want to be strong in your faith, you need to do study on your own, right? I actually have a handout that, um, would you mind just going ahead and passing these out to somebody or everybody? Just one per family. This is something, we won't be able to cover all this today, but I want you to take this with you and take it home. Um, and I want to encourage you to look over this stuff later and dig into it later, okay? We're going to talk about it today, and I hope to whet your appetite and to give you some assurance. But I want to encourage you, this is really, really important. Is the Bible trustworthy? In, in contrast to what Bart says, the Bible actually has, gives a very different perspective. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, Let's read what Paul told Timothy about the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. It's on the screen if uh, you didn't bring a Bible with you. All right. 
So Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I believe what Paul is saying here, that when we approach the scriptures, all of them, we're approaching something that's profitable, useful for teaching, and it's trustworthy, right? And just as a quick side note here, when Paul's talking to Timothy, the scriptures he's talking about would be the Old Testament, right? The New Testament wasn't written yet. Paul was currently writing what would become part of the New Testament, even though he probably didn't even know it. Um, So Paul is telling Timothy, hey, you've grown up with the Old Testament. You've been assured of the truth of them. Continue in it because they're profitable and they're trustworthy, okay? Now, of course, I'm running into a problem right away because I'm using a Bible verse to say that the Bible is trustworthy, right? (laughs) So I'm kind of using the Bible to affirm that the Bible is true. So let's get into this. We're going to dive in, and I hope you brought your thinking hats this morning, as I used to say in school. We're going to look at a lot of stuff. And I want to apologize right away for the, um, some of these pictures I'm going to show are really bad because I took them with my phone. Um, I was drawing from a bunch of different sources. So just bear with me. But we're going to look at history. We're going to look at um, a bunch of different stuff. So let's dive in. The first thing we're going to talk about here as far as the reliability of the scriptures is the Old Testament. Um, sorry, my earpiece is being weird. All right. Um, and the first thing I want to talk about that I believe we can trust with assurance is that the Old Testament has been reliably translated. Okay? We're going to look at the history of the Old Testament and whether or not we have reason to trust it. And then we'll look at the New Testament and whether or not we have reason to trust that. Okay? So the first thing I want to look at, and I want, to, I want you guys to look at with me, is that the Old Testament has been reliably translated. Okay? So look at this. This is really hard to see. I apologize. Um, I was taking pictures from these different books I was looking at. Um, so in 2000 BC onward, 2000 years before Christ came, um, Events are written down in Hebrew, portions in Aramaic over the centuries. In Exodus, the Lord tells Moses to write in a book. Other Old Testament writers inspired by God include leaders, kings, and prophets. Together, these writings on leather scrolls and other materials are called the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. Okay? Now, it is, according to tradition, Ezra is one of the ones who collects and arranges some of the books of the Hebrew Bible. Um, And the Septuagint, this is important, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, okay? Now, this was translated, it's a little bit hard to see, but it's translated in 250 to 100 BC by about 70 or 72 Jewish scholars, okay? So the Hebrew Bible has been around about 250 to 100 BC. It's translated into Greek. Um, And then the books are arranged by subject, historical, poetic, and prophetic. It includes the Apocrypha, Um, referring to the seven books that were included in the Hebrew Bible until AD 90. So those would be books like the Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, that we don't currently have in our Bible. The Catholics still have it in their Bible. Um, Okay, so the the writings were passed down through the centuries. They were copied. They started with the original writer, be it Moses or whoever wrote the book. They were copied. um, 
and then they were compiled, and eventually they were translated into Greek. The Greek Septuagint is probably the Bible that Paul and the apostles would have read from. When you're reading the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, it's often from the Greek Septuagint, okay? So that's where they got the Septuagint. These Jewish scholars translated it from the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, it's probably what Paul and the apostles would have read and quoted, okay? Now, until 1946, not that long ago, less than 100 years ago, the oldest known manuscript we had of the Old Testament was called the Masoretic Text, and it was translated by these guys, the Masoretes, okay? Um, right here. They were special Jewish scribes. This is 500 years after Jesus wrote, uh, died and rose again, okay? The Masoretes were special Jewish scribes entrusted with the sacred task of making copies of the Hebrew scriptures approximately between approximately 500 and 900 AD, okay? Sorry about this picture, but they developed a meticulous system of counting the number of words in each book of the Bible to make sure they copied it accurately. So every book of the Bible in the Old Testament that they copied, remember, these are Jewish scribes. They're not Christians, okay? They're trying to preserve their Jewish faith. Um, so they're only copying the Old Testament in Hebrew, um, they counted each word, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, just amount, imagine counting all the words there, and they would count them to make sure they had copied it accurately. Any scroll to found to have an error is buried according to Jewish law, okay? So the oldest manuscript we have, read this with me, the oldest known complete Hebrew manuscript of the Old Testament was a Masoretic text. It was, it was a text translated by one of these Masoretic Jews, Okay. Uh, made by the Jewish scribes called Masoretes, which is known as the Ben Asher Codex located today in the public library of Leningrad, Russia. If you want to go see it, this uh, text of the Bible from AD 1008, you can go see it in Russia. Although this Masoretic version of the Bible is ancient, it was still penned a thousand years after the last book of the Old Testament was written. Okay? Because it was one of the oldest existing Hebrew manuscripts, the Ben Asher Codex served as the basis for the scholarly standard edition of the Hebrew Bible, Kittel's Biblia Hebraica, as well as the Christian translation of the Old Testament, such as the King James Version. So um, if you are reading the King James Version and then all of these other ones before it, so the Matthews, the Tyndale, the Wycliffe, you guys have probably heard of that, the Vulgate Latin translation of the Bible, they use the Masoretic text, this, this text from 1008, A.D., the, the oldest text we had, even though it was a thousand years removed from, uh, Jesus, uh, from the events when they actually happened, um, all of these Bibles were translated, the Old Testament was translated using uh, the Masoretic text, okay? So, because, now the problem that rose up was because the Masoretic text had been copied so long after the originals, around a thousand years, there were accusations that the translations of the Old Testament were not trustworthy. So look at what the critics would say. As copies of copies of copies of the Old Testament books were made over the centuries, many scholars concluded that mistakes may have been introduced into the Masoretic text. Okay? So comparisons with other ancient versions of the Old Testament, such as the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and Samaritan Pentateuch, seem to confirm this transmission problem and called into question the integrity and reliability of the traditional Hebrew text. So I hope you're tracking with me. The Greek Septuagint, remember, around 250 to 100 BC, it's translated from the Hebrew scriptures they had at that time into Greek. We no longer have those Hebrew scriptures that 
they translated the Greek Septuagint from. You track with me? We only have a copy of the Hebrew Scriptures that came about 800 years, that was copied about 800 years later by the Masoretes. So we have the Greek Septuagint, and then we have this Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, and when they would compare them, they'd be like, well, I don't know how they, from what I understand, they were like, I don't know how they got this Greek translation from this Hebrew version of it. Does that make sense? Like, maybe this Hebrew version got changed over the years, because I don't know how it worked out in the Greek 800 years ago. Is that making sense? Y'all tracking with me? Okay. I know it's a little, a lot of stuff, but so, so the critics are saying, I don't know. We can't know for sure because we don't have the Hebrew text from back then, but because of the Greek Septuagint and the Latin version, we're not sure that everything has stayed the same in the Hebrew codex. All right. Now something happened in 1946 that really blew this thing wide open. In 1946, we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Middle East. Okay. Look at this. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of 931 documents discovered over a half a century ago in the region of the Judean Desert in what is today called the West Bank. The scrolls date from different periods. Notice this. This is important. As early as 300 B.C. to A.D. 40. So uh, many of these scrolls were copied before Jesus was born. Very important. Um, and they were hidden in caves along the edge of the Dead Sea. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is the greatest literary and archaeological discovery of our time. The scrolls are not the original documents that make up the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, but they are the oldest copies of those documents that we have today. The scrolls contain a variety of writings, portions of every book of the Old Testament, except the book of Esther. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were not just Bible they were not just Old Testament. These were kept by Jews that are supposed, supposed to have been part of a sect called the Qumran or something like that. I'm not saying it right. You can look it up. Um, but they, for whatever reason, hastily hid these scrolls in caves. It's possible that they hid them when Jerusalem was destroyed. It's possible for some reason they needed to get out of there quickly. I don't know. Um, but anyways, uh, they were hidden in these caves. And so there's a lot of information about the way the Jews lived, about you know, different practices and stuff they had at that time. And because these Jews were Jews, they had Old Testament scriptures, of course, right? Now, what's so great about this is the fact that we now have scriptures from a thousand years apart, Old Testament, that we can compare to each other. And see how much has it changed. Because before we didn't have that. We just had the Greek Septuagint, the Latin Vulgate, and we're like, ah, I don't know. But now we have scriptures from a thousand years apart. Scriptures that were written before Jesus was born. So there's no way his disciples could have perverted them or twisted them to try and make it look like Jesus was some Messiah, right? Very important. So look at this. So the doubts were settled in the discovery in cave one of a copy of the entire book of Isaiah dated to 125 B.C., about 125 to 170 years before Jesus was born, or before he died. Um, This is a thousand years earlier than the Masoretic Ben Asher Codex. When compared to the Ben Asher Codex, this scroll proved to be identical to the later version of Isaiah in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted primarily of obvious slips of the pen and spelling alterations, many of which are no more significant than the different then the difference, uh, that's supposed to be different. See, I copied it wrong. Look at that. Then the difference in meaning between the word over being used in the place of the word above. 
The accuracy also proved to be the case for all the other biblical scrolls among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Although interesting differences and additions do appear and are of great value in understanding the history of the transmission of the biblical text, on the whole, the witness of the scrolls is the exceptional preservation of the biblical text through the centuries. So I want to go ahead and tell you right up off the top as we're getting into the Old Testament, because we see this a little bit in the New Testament as well. Over time, when these copies are made by hand, because of human error, there are changes that we find in the later translations as opposed to the, I mean, later copies as opposed to earlier copies, right? But they are not significant enough to change anything from what we have today. And what's great about the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and some other discoveries we'll talk about in a little while is we're able to go back and change what we have now to fit what we discovered later. So the King James, for instance, was translated from the Masoretic text. If you're reading some of the newer translations like ESV or whatever, sometimes you'll see that things are different or maybe a verse is missing or whatever. Some of that has to do with the older, transla- uh, the older versions that we found that give us a better idea of uh, what was more accurate. Does this make sense? So it's really cool. There's, there's not like this, every word was perfectly preserved without fault. They did make mistakes. But when you look at it overall, you see, wow, it is super preserved. I mean, imagine hundreds of people copying the same book over a thousand years. And then you get the one book over here and one book over here. It's like the biggest game of telephone ever, right? And they're 95% different. And I mean, they're not, sorry, 95% different. They're 95% the same. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the majority of the, the differences have boiled down to spelling differences or the, the um, positioning of the words and things like that. Really amazing. Um, there's a lot more we could talk about with this. That handout um, covers a lot of what I've just discussed, and I encourage you to read it. Um, so when, we have, when we're reading a, a modern translation today of the Old Testament, you're reading from a combination of the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls where they can get the most accurate um, version of the Bible. So we have very strong reasons to believe that the Bible translation of the Old Testament is reliable and accurate. Um, but that the Bible, the Old Testament that Jesus had when he was on earth is the same Old Testament that we have today. We have very good reason to believe that, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's true, right? Like it could just be a bunch of accurately copied falsehoods. <laughs> so, um, so I want to show you some things that give me confidence that the Old Testament that Jesus read and that we're reading today is one that we can trust. Um, so the second point, Jesus affirmed that the Old Testament is trustworthy. Look at this. Jesus quotes the Old Testament often. He says that he did not come to destroy the scriptures, but to fulfill them. And he says to his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So um, this is really interesting, and it, it's, it's a long shot, but it's still possible. So Jesus trusted the scriptures. He even used them against the devil in the wilderness, right? And because of the time that the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated to be written, it's even possible that Jesus read or heard from portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves, right? And there's almost no doubt that it would have been impossible for there be floating around different, transla- different copies, like different, differing copies of the Old Testament during Jesus' time. The Jews were very 
concerned with the accuracy of their religion, right? So the Dead Sea Scrolls, if they were around during Jesus' time, it's the same scriptures Jesus was reading wherever he was. Does that make sense? They're making accurate, they're making consistent copies during that time. So it's even possible that Jesus read or heard. I mean, he was all around that area, from what I understand, if I'm thinking of the right place. So it's, it's possible that the, he even heard or read from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, and Jesus said these copies that we have right now, the Old Testament, they're trustworthy. He referred to them. He relied on them. He told his disciples with the Old Testament, the prophets and the law testified of me in the copies that you're reading, what they testify of me, they're accurate. They're trustworthy, okay? So Jesus trusted the Old Testament that he had and that we have today. Now, the prophecies also that Jesus fulfilled testify to the trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, specifically all the prophecies in the book of Isaiah, since we have that whole copy, but all the other scriptures we have too, the disciples could not have altered them after Jesus came because they were already around. Um, before Jesus was born. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Dead Sea Scrolls were around before Jesus was born. So there's no way the disciples could have gone in after and changed the Old Testament to try and make it look like Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. It was already there. And it's the same Old Testament we have today. So the fact that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies is amazing. There's this story maybe you've heard before, but I ran across and I was amazed by it again. There's this mathematician who wanted to calculate the probability of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies. So he did his calculations for eight of the prophecies. He submitted it to an independent board to make sure his, his uh, calculations were, were right. So just eight prophecies for Jesus to fulfill would have been 10 to the 17th power. That means 10 with 17 zeros after it. He had one chance in 10 to the 17th power. I don't even know what kind of number that is to fulfill eight of the prophecies. Um, for example, for him to be born in Bethlehem, that's a prophecy he fulfilled. You have to take the number of people in the area and discuss the probability of all the towns that he could have been born in. So for him to end up in Bethlehem and be born there, that's a big deal. And so for eight of those to be fulfilled, just eight. And to give you an understanding, Jesus conservatively fulfilled at least 300 prophecies from the Old Testament during his lifetime. That's a conservative estimate. Some people say more in the 500, almost 600 range. So just eight of them, one in 10 to the 17th power. So to give you a little idea, that's like if you took Texas and covered it in quarters, it would cover it two feet deep. You take one quarter, put an X on it, then you shuffle all the quarters around, and then you blindfold somebody and tell them to go and they can only pick up one quarter. They can walk as far as they want, but they can only pick up one. The chance of them picking up the quarter with the X on it is the chance of Jesus just fulfilling eight of them. And he fulfilled conservatively 300 of them. Okay? That is um, amazing. That really speaks to the veracity and the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. Again, it would have been impossible for them to alter it after the fact. The Old Testament was written. Jesus appeared and fulfilled the prophecies it's a big deal, all right? All right, I know this a lot. I hope you're tracking with me. Um, number four, the New Testament writers affirm the validity of the Old Testament. So when you read in the New Testament, the, Old, the New Testament writers refer to every book of the Old Testament except eight. So there's no indication that there was any doubt that the Old Testament scriptures were trustworthy in the Bible, right? We, by the New Testament writers, by Jesus, they all affirm the reliability of the Old Testament. Um, so, in summary, this is why I believe the Old Testament is reliable. We know it's been reliably translated. Jesus trusted it. 
The prophecies he fulfilled confirm it, and the New Testament writers trusted it as well. Now, again, I'm running into a problem because I am assuming that the Old Testament is true because I believe what it says about Jesus. Like, uh, how do I say? The New Testament says that Jesus believed the Old Testament, right? So I'm basing my belief in the Old Testament off of the New Testament, right? Does that make sense? I believe that the writers believed in the Old Testament because they quote it in the New Testament. But then I run into the problem, well, how do I know the New Testament is trustworthy, right? So let's look at that. First point, the gospels and epistles we have were written and circulated among the churches within roughly 10 to 65 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's a big deal because that means that the epistles and gospels were written not by people who didn't know Jesus, but by eyewitnesses, okay? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, James, Peter, Jude, they write the gospels, history letters to other Christians under Revelation between AD 45 and 100. Again, 10 to 65 years after Jesus uh, died and rose again. The writers quote from all but eight of the Old Testament books. These writings in Greek are copied and circulated so that by 150 AD, there's wide enough use of them to speak of the New Testament. So this is important. When you read the early church fathers outside of the Bible, like Polycarp, um, like some of the other ones we'll see here soon, they are talking about these letters. They are talking about that they read them and they are using them and teaching their churches. This is important because some of the critics will say, well, these letters weren't written for hundreds of years until after Jesus died. They're just legends. You know, they were just t- uh, stories that got blown out of proportion. And then they wrote these gospels, right? But that's not true. Just looking at history, these church leaders are quoting them within 120 years of Jesus uh, dying and rising again. And we believe by dating them and all that, that they were written within 10 to 65 years. So, um, very important. Uh, uh, let's see. Okay, and then the apostles, the gospels and the epistles were copied and then circulated among the churches. So check this out. For the New Testament, the process of recognition and collection began in the first centuries of the Christian church. Very early on, some of the New Testament books were being recognized. Paul considered Luke writings to, Luke's writings to be as authoritative as the Old Testament. And I mean, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, it's a great name. So, I'm just kidding. Okay. If you don't know, my name's Luke. So, that was a joke. Okay. All right. Uh, um, and then it quotes some of the places uh, where he says that Peter recognized Paul's writings as scripture. He says so in Second Peter. Some of the books of the New Testament were being circulated among the churches. We know that because Paul would say, hey, have this read to the other churches. All right, here's some of the early church fathers. Clement of Rome mentioned at least eight New Testament books in A.D. 95. So that is about 65 years after, you know, roughly Jesus died and rose again. Um, Polycarp, a disciple of John the Apostle, acknowledged 15 books in A.D. 108, only 13 years later. Later, Irenaeus mentioned 27 books in A.D. 185. Hippolytus recognized 22 books, A.D. 170 to 235. So the New Testament books receiving the most controversy were Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John. And if you didn't know, some of the books, they had a lot of debate about whether it should be involved in the canon of the Bible or not. Okay? But the point here is that these books were not written a long time after Jesus died and rose again. They were written very soon, very soon. 
um, especially with the persecution happening, I believe some of the church leaders were thinking, man, we might die. We need to make sure our eyewitness testimony is preserved for the churches. And so they wrote it down. It was circulated among the churches. Um, and that's very important. Now, one thing that I want to just touch on briefly, because this is more about the accuracy of the Bible and can, you know, has it been reliably copied and translated and all that. But one question you run into is how do we know that Jesus really did all of the things that the New Testament says, right? And that's a little bit of a separate discussion, um, but it, it does tie into this discussion a little bit. So here's a couple quick thoughts I just want you to think about. First of all, if what the disciples said was untrue about what Jesus did, because it was written so close to his death and resurrection, all the Jewish leaders has to do, had to do was bring forth proof either that Jesus did not do the miracles that they said he did, or to just present Jesus' body, right? All they had to do was bring forth Jesus' dead body or prove that Jesus didn't do the miracles that he said they said he did. For example, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. All they had to do was say, hey, look, there's Lazarus. He's dead, right? In the time that these stories were starting to circulate. But they couldn't do it. They, now, I'm not saying they didn't try to, but they had no substantial evidence that those things did not happen, right? The things that they wrote would have been very easy to refute if Jesus had not done them. Uh, a lot of his miracles were done in public, in specific towns at specific times. They could have easily proved that the people there were like, no, that didn't happen. That never happened, right? But that didn't happen. And uh, the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders, for all their faults, for example, when the apostles healed the, the, the beggar at the gate, the gate beautiful in Acts, they said, we can't say anything against them because a very notable miracle has been done by them, and it's obvious to all the people, right? And that's what happened with Jesus. Jesus did miracles, and they hated Jesus, but they also, there wasn't a whole lot they could do to say that he didn't do it. Now, all, another reason I believe the New Testament writings are accurate about what it says about Jesus all of the apostles, except for John, suffered and died horrible deaths. There is no logical reason they would have held on to a lie that they knew was false. None of the apostles got rich. Paul died in a Roman prison by execution, and he suffered all kinds of things, right? Like, there was no reason when you're faced with execution before Caesar, and he says all you have to do is admit that you're telling a lie and that Jesus is not Lord. If they knew it was a lie, because it's not like they got deceived, the 12 apostles would have been creating the lie, right? And there's no earthly reason why they would have held on to it unless it was true. They weren't getting any gain from it. And they all died, except for John, and he got exiled to Patmos, so that wasn't fun either, right? I mean, they were all martyred, rather. They all died, of course. Here's another thing that's really interesting, and then we'll move on. Another proof that the New Testament is true. The, what's really interesting is that the stories never change. For example, if you find a part, they found um, a parchment of the book of John in Egypt, which was hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles from where it was originally written. I, I don't remember the exact distance, but very far, right? And it's the same. It's the exact same as the book of John that was circulating around in Asia Minor. And that's important because if you have a legend 
especially if there's no strict guidelines about copying the legend, it's going to expand. It's going to start to look like the folk tales and the lore of the people to which you are ministering, right? It's going to start to look a little bit more like Zeus and the Greek gods. It's going to look a little bit more like the the native gods that the people serve. It's going to become blown out of proportion. You're going to find a story over here in Egypt in the book of John that's not over here, but they've got different stories, right? But what you find is that they're all the same. Um, We'll get to a little bit more about that in a minute, but the, the, the reliability of what they said happened and that they were so strict about keeping it the same, it just so testifies to the accuracy of what they said. All right, so those are some things to think about as far as why we can believe the Bible, I mean the New Testament, is actually true. I want to encourage you, if you haven't read this book, check out The Case for Christ, okay? It's a good book, and he goes into extra biblical evidence for why we can believe the Bible, not just because the Bible says so, but did Jesus actually die? Do we have proof that his resurrection actually happened? You know? And if you're serious about discovering the validity of Christianity, I'd really encourage you to read that book. It's really good. Um, the guy became a Christian uh, while he was writing it. So, All right, so the second point here, the first point is The Gospels and Epistles were written close to the date of Jesus' death and resurrection. There wasn't a lot of room for error and legend-making, and if there was, it would have been refuted very quickly. The second point is, man, this is hard to read. Sorry, I thought it'd be easier. But great scrutiny was applied to the selection of the New Testament canon to ensure their historical accuracy and doctrinal trustworthiness. I don't say this just because it sounds good. I say it because it's true. If you study history, you're going to see that they went head over heels, effort-wise, trying to figure out what was going to go in the canon of the Bible. So check this out. The first canon was the Muratorian canon. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it was compiled in AD 170. The Muratorian canon included all the New Testament books except Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and third John. There's still some debate about those books. Now, uh, about, let's see, what's that, 100, 200 years later, almost 200 years later, in AD 363, the Council of Laodicea stated that the only, that only the Old Testament, along with one book of the Apocrypha, and 26 books of the New Testament, everything except Revelation, were canonical and, be, and, to, be, and to be read in the churches. The Council of Hippo, 8393, and the Council of Carthage, 397, also affirmed the same 27 books that we now have in our Bible. So what, what were they trying to do here? What, why was there so much debate about some of these books, and why was it so hard to figure out the canon? Here's why. Check this out. The Council followed something similar to the following principles to determine whether a New Testament book was truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number one, was the author an apostle? or have a close connection with an apostle. So they didn't want just anybody writing stories about Jesus. They wanted to make sure we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the writer of this book was an apostle, or he knew uh, apostle very well. So for example, like the book of Mark. Peter is where Mark most likely got all of that. The church is determined because Mark was one of Peter's ministers. So uh, the church determined that it was very reliable that Mark got his uh, uh, facts for the book of Mark from Peter. We can trust what Mark has said here. Even though he wasn't an apostle, he's a very close connection to an apostle. Luke is the same way with Paul, right? Uh, But then we have Matthew and John. They were both apostles, and they wanted to make sure that the authorship of this was not in doubt, that we could trust these. If you look, um, there are about maybe 15, 20, just in one of these books here that I have, of false gospels, or 
pseudo gospels that they did not accept. So you might hear the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Judas. There's a whole bunch of other ones, right? And some of these are just fragments that we found. We don't even have the whole gospel. But they did not accept these because they could not prove who wrote them and their validity, right? So number one, was it an apostle? Close connection to apostle. Is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? I love this because they knew that the Holy Spirit was here to bring unity. And so the epistles and the letters that had already been accepted by 150 that had been circulating around, those are the epistles and letters that they were considering for the canon, right? They weren't considering things that were new, that only this part of the church used and nobody else really used. They wanted something that there was unity about that many spiritual leaders from many different places said, yeah, we see God's spirit in this book, right? Number three, did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? Did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Spirit? So in AD 300, around this time, the New Testament books that were being select, uh, circulated, they're collected, um, and about the time of Constantine, the Roman emperor who legalized Christianity in 313, hold on, I'm not reading that right, are collected and circulated throughout the Mediterranean about the time of Constantine, the Roman emperor who legalized Christianity in 313. Okay, and yeah, and they'd already been circulating among the churches. So within that time frame, by 400, the standard of 27 New Testament books is, is accepted in the East and West, as confirmed by, and these are church fathers, Athanasius, Jerome, Augustine, and three church councils. The 27 books of the New Testament were formally confirmed as canonical by the Synod of Carthage in 397, thus recognizing three centuries of use by the followers of Christ. So again, these books have been circulating, and all these councils did was say, okay, let's get, let's get a canon that we can trust. Because like I said, other gospels were coming up. Uh, there were Gnostic teachings that were attacking the church, and some of these Gnostic teachers would write gospels. And so they wanted to have a canon that the church could use. So was there unity? Can we prove the authorship? Does it have consistency of doctrine? These 27 books of the New Testament do, okay? Now, I know I'm reading a whole lot, and I'm probably talking your ear off, but... Just bear with me, because I want to read you something else that uh, I just want to pump your head full of information. You can come back and listen to this later, whatever, but I want you to know why we can trust the Bible, okay? This is, this is what some critics will claim, okay? Many Christians today think that the canon of the New Testament simply appeared on the scene one day, soon after the death of Jesus, but nothing could be farther from the truth. This is what the critics say. Nothing could be farther from the truth. As it turns out, we are able to pinpoint the first time that any Christian of record listed the 27 books of the New Testament as the books of the New Testament, neither more nor fewer, and that was in the year 367. Athanasius wrote his annual pastor letter to the Egyptian churches under his jurisdiction, and in it, he lists our 27 books, excluding all others. So what they're saying is, the reason we have 27 books is because this big influential bishop guy, he said you should only read these 27 books, and that's why we have them. Um, but that is not the case. So listen to this. This statement, what we just read, leaves out several key facts about the selection of the New Testament books. It is true that Athanasius was the first author to list the exact same 27 books that we find in the New Testament today. Yet from the beginning, Christians unanimously accepted the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, and the first epistle of John. Although disputes about a few New Testament books lasted into the fourth century, Widespread agreement about which were authoritative existed among Christians from the first century onward. Like I showed you earlier, early church fathers were already talking about a lot of these books very early on. 
The primary, uh, the primary standard for deciding which books were authoritative emerged long before the fourth century, and the standard wasn't the word of a powerful bishop. Hints of the standard can, in fact, be found in Christian writings of the first century AD. The basic idea was this. Testimony that could be connected to eyewitnesses of the risen Lord was uniquely authoritative among early Christians. So like we said, apostles or people who knew apostles, eyewitnesses. Um, from the beginning, authoritative testimony about Jesus Christ had to have its source in eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. Even while the New Testament books were being written, the words of the people who saw and followed the risen Lord carried special weight in the churches. The logic of the standard was simple. The people most likely to know the truth about Jesus were eyewitnesses who had encountered Jesus personally or their close associates. Um, let me read you just a little bit more. Although debates continued into the fourth century about a few writings, including the letters of Peter, John's second and third letters, and the letters of James and Jude, Christians universally agreed at least as early as the second century on the authority of no fewer than 19 of the books in the New Testament. And these are the writings that reflect some of the most essential truths about Jesus. Even if the score, even if this score or so books have been the only document, so even if, so they're saying from the second century, Christians agreed on 19 of the books. There's pretty much consensus on 19. There was debate over around eight of them, right? Into the fourth century. But even if it had just been those 19 books had been the only documents that represented eyewitness testimony about Jesus, every vital truth of the Christian faith would still remain completely intact. What directed this process was the conviction that these writings must be rooted in reliable eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ. So the only reason the other eight books were, um, there was debate about them is they wanted to make sure it's eyewitness testimony. It's reliable, okay? So thank you guys for bearing with me. We got a little bit more to go, but I just want to tell you, I know there's a lot of information, but I hope, I hope it's good. I hope you're seeing all the work and effort that went into putting our Bible together. Um, all right, last point for the New Testament. The incredible amount of ancient copies ensure the accuracy of transmission throughout the centuries and gives us great confidence that the scriptures we read today are consistent with the original author's words. So like I told you before, sometimes when we, get, when we read a copy of the New Testament that's ancient, we'll find differences. Um, and that bothers some people. So let me give you an example, okay? Greet and in Romans 16, 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. That's how the ESV translates this verse. Now that word there, that phrase there, well known to the apostles, it can also mean significant among the apostles. Okay. So at some point from some of the ancient copies we have, for some reason, we don't know why, we just have the copy. It appears that a scribe changed Junia's name to Junius, a man, possibly because he didn't want it to be he didn't want the idea to be given that a female could have been an apostle for whatever reason. Maybe that was his doctrinal position, and he felt like, well, maybe this isn't right, so I'm going to change it to Junius, right? We don't know why he did that. We can only guess. But you'll notice in this Bible, it is translated Junia. Why is that? Why didn't it get changed into Junius? Because even though a lot of critics will say there's changes in the, in the copies and there's, there's discrepancies, what they won't often tell you is that we have around 5,700 or so full or partial copies of the New Testament in our possession today, which every translation of the New Testament can be compared to. So the reason this is translated Junia 
is because only a little bit of those copies say Junius, and the vast majority of them say Junia, and probably the more ancient ones say Junia as well. And so we recognize, okay, this scribe made an error. We don't know why, but he translated this name as Junius instead of Junia, but we know it should be Junia because of all the copies we have and how old they date. Does that make sense? And that is the awesomeness of the amount of evidence we have for the New Testament. See, the scribes, because these are written by hand, they can't change every copy that's been written. There's copies that have been written before them. They could only, even if they were malicious, even if they wanted to, like some of the critics will say, keep women down or, you know, advance some political agenda. Even if they wanted to do that, they could only affect the copies they're working on, right? And so when we have all of these copies from so many different places, we are really able to determine which ones are right. Um, And that is so cool. Something else really great that happened is between 1629 and 1947, several of the earliest known copies of the Bible are found. So we found the Codex Codex Alexandri, whatever. Um, We found it and it's dated to be uh, around approximately 400 A.D., Best copy of the book of Revelation. Look at the top, Codex Sinaiticus. Earliest complete copy of the New Testament, copied in approximately 350, is found in St. Catherine's Monastery, now Mount, near Mount Sinai. One more, and I'm going to tell you why, that's, why this is so important. Codex Vaticanus. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say these, but earliest and probably the best copy known of the New Testament from approximately 350. Now, if you've been listening, the official 27 books of the Bible were officially, officially confirmed in 397, right? So there, during this time when this New Testament was, was copied, there was a ton of scrutiny going on on the New Testament, right? We have two copies, complete and partial, of a New Testament from 350 where there's all the scrutiny going on on the New Testament to make sure it's accurate, the books in it are trustworthy, that changes aren't being made, because they're working on creating like an official you know, canon for us, for us to read. The churches are working on this together. So the fact that we have these copies of the Bible that came from that time, we have a lot of assurance that these are good copies that we can trust. Does that make sense? Um, very, very cool that God preserved those for us. Um, and so what's neat about this... Um, I'm going to show you a pic in a second. but um, um, so, so let's go back to these points. So the Gospels uh, were written very close to Jesus' death and resurrection. Great scrutiny was applied to the inclusion of which, book, which books would be included in the canon. And then we have so many copies dated back very early, within four, even 300 years. And, and I should say, those, those copies I showed you, they're like complete or, or like very large portions of the New Testament, but we have plenty of books and portions of the New Testament that date within the first, uh, possibly the first, and definitely the second century. So what I'm saying is we have portions of the New Testament even earlier than, than these that I showed you here, okay? So again, we just have, and that would have been, when I'm saying first and second century, I'm talking about within 100 to 200 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, right? Like these are copies that are very, very early. And these were, came later, they're just more complete. But again, we have so many uh, fragments and copies of the New Testament that there's no way, I want to say, there's no way that this could have been perverted um, by scholars who really care about the correct translation of the Bible. And there's a lot of them out there, right? So we have good reason to trust that 
our Bible is accurate, okay? Now, let me, let me show you this just to give you a little bit of comparison. So Plato's, works of Plato were written around 400 BC, right? Only seven copies have survived. Did anybody ever read Plato's Republic in school? Yes. Yeah. Um, the earliest surviving manuscript was copied between AD 800 and 900, so more than 1,200 years after the original documents were written. And we will still say with certainty that the, we believe these can be attributed to Plato, even though they were written so far after, right? But people will rag on the Bible, even though it was written between AD 60 and 100, or AD 45 and 100, depending on how you, you slice it. More than 5,700 portions have survived. Complete manuscripts of the New Testament um, have survived from the late 3rd or early 4th centuries, less than 300 years after the original documents were written. Hundreds of fragments and manuscripts have survived from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, and there's even question if we might have some originals or copies of originals um, from churches like in Rome and stuff like that, okay? So what's neat about this, this picture is really hard to see, I'm sorry, but I showed you, I showed you this portion earlier, right? And these came from the Masoretic text, and it came from the uh, translation of the New Testament that we had before 1629, before some of these later, uh, um, before some of those codexes I just showed y'all came out of 1629 and onward. So all of these were translated. But then we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Then we found the Codex Alexandricus, the Codex Vaticanus, and the Codex Sinaiticus or whatever. And so all of these translations that we have today, um, here's the ESV right here, right? All these translations find their root for the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they find it in these early copies of the New Testament and stuff that we have, right? Um, and they'll also base it on some of the work that was done, like in the King James Revised Version, stuff like that, okay? So all that to say, I want you to understand that the Bibles we have today are very trustworthy, right? We have very good reason to believe that the Bibles we have are awesome, okay? Now, I've got more to say, um, but we're getting close to when we should wrap up. So um, maybe we'll get to that next time, okay? But we're going to close right here. Um, and I did, uh, John, if you want to come up. And uh, I just want to encourage you guys to do study on your own. I, like I said, I really am just touching the tip of the iceberg in this sermon, right? But I want you to feel confident that what we have today is reliable and trustworthy. I don't know how what we have today could be perverted, um, because of the text we have, it would be very, very hard. And scholars who study would catch it like that, you know, because we can go read it. We can go read the Old Testament from before Jesus was born. We can go read the New Testament within 100 or 200 years of when Jesus died and rose again. Like we have it, you know, and there's very good reason to believe that what it talks about is true. It's not accurately copied falsehoods, but it's accurately copied truth, right? So I want to encourage you in that. And I really encourage you to take that, this, uh, I don't know, oh, yeah, those things we handed out and read it at home because it talks about a lot of things I didn't get to cover today, okay? Let's pray.